0: Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to attend to our time? Father, we are grateful for this day, opportunity to study your word, opportunity to be together to think about the truth, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it, to be motivated by it. Lord, for your truth is that which is always right, powerful, sharper than any two edged sword filled with all authority because it comes from you. And so I pray that we would receive it in such a way that it would change us, cause us to be more like Christ when we leave here than when we came in, cause us to know you more, to fear you more, to live as you would have us for your glory, to the praise of our savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them again to our study of Jude. The book of Jude I said to you last time, if you have a hard time locating that, just turn to Revelation and back one page and you'll find it. Jude is right before Revelation. And what a wonderful beginning we had last Lord's Day as we began our study and really we just began to scratch the surface of this little letter and all that it is saying to us, it is only 25 verses. It is only 644 words in the new American standard Bible. And it is a short letter to say the least that if you remember in our study of second Peter, that we studied just prior to this study, Peter had been telling us to be on guard. The message was similar he said be on guard because there were false prophets that had arose among the people of Israel the ancient Israeli people as they had been delivered by God from Egypt and so too there would be he said false teachers among you It was a warning to us as Christians It was a warning to us as the body of Christ, to us as a local gathering of Christians here who are called the church, it was a warning to keep guard because deception through the means of false teachers would come. In other words, we were to be living in expectation of that happening. And then, of course, we turned the page over to The letter of Jude, and no longer it is a warning that false teachers will come, but rather that false teachers have now arrived. False teachers are here. They have already slipped in among us, and that alone ought to cause us to take a deep breath because it tells us that Satan has his schemes it tells us that Satan is always active, that he's always working, that he's always prowling around and that they his schemes are crafty schemes. What Satan does is subtle, it is subversive. And they are used to creep into the church even when we are watching, even when we are actively guarding. Satan is subtle. Just as the tares are sown in with the true wheat, so too false teachers creep in. They creep in. And the proliferation of the lies and the reality that the lies are actually believed by some is a shocking reality when we think about it. And yet, this is what we are confronted with here in the book of Jude. Jude. Now, last time we were together, we began to understand the message of Jude by just kind of hanging our thoughts on four introductory categories. These aren't aren't inspired categories. These are just ways for us to kind of keep things in mind as we walk through these verses. Number one was the description in verse one, Jude describes himself and to those whom he is writing. We saw that last Lord's day. And then I gave you the rest of the outline just so you would have it. Number two will be the desire in verse two, number three, the direction, and then number four, the delineation or the discernment that Jude uses here in this situation. So let's just begin our time this morning by just reading these first verses to us so that we can reacquaint ourselves with just what Jude says. Beginning in verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I trust as I read those few short verses that your own mind was stirred up, at least by way of reminder of the description that Jude gives for those to whom he is writing. Because he is writing to the called. He is writing to those who are true Christians. He is writing to those who know Jesus Christ. For there is no person who ever had a relationship with God the Father through the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ who is not the called. There is no relationship with Jesus Christ unless you are called, unless you are affectionately called through the gospel to believe, and therefore you believe because of God's calling upon your life. For without being called by God unto salvation, there is no salvation. Therefore, Jude is writing to true believers God has chosen all of those whom he saves. And so He chose them, as we know from other scriptures, Ephesians chapter 1, He chose them before the foundation of the world so that Jesus Christ would and could declare the truth in John chapter 10 when He was on this earth that nothing can snatch any of whom He saves out of His hand because nothing can snatch them out of the Father's hand for nothing is more powerful or greater than the Father. Why does God call those whom He calls? Why has He chosen to save any, let alone some? Simply this, that He has placed His saving love upon them. This is what Jude says here in verse 1. They are the called, beloved in God the Father. They are beloved in God the Father, and because they are beloved, they are called. And in the same way that they are called because they are beloved, so too, Jude says, they are kept secure for Christ Jesus since they are called. And so when you and I as Christians grasp the death of what Jude is saying just in those few phrases as he begins his letter, then nothing could be more encouraging. Nothing can be more strengthening for us as those who will face the onslaught of battling for the truth. Nothing can be more generating for us as soldiers who have been now commanded to take the mountain than the commander saying to us, listen, don't worry about it. Nothing can remove you from this love that I have for you. Nothing could be more motivating to us who are Christians than to understand that nothing can separate us from the very love of God that saves us and secures us in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, then who can be against us, the Word of God says. And beloved, we must preach that to ourselves every day. We must preach that message to our very hearts because the tendency for us is to cower. The tendency for us is to move aside. The tendency for us is to compromise because the battle for the truth is raging. It is raging all around us. The devil, as I said, is prowling around seeking whom he may devour and therefore we must be ready to stand. But that is not all Jude says to us, because secondly, he shares his desire with us. Notice verse two, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. I don't know if you picked this up as we were speaking about what Jude was talking about last week, but but maybe you've noticed that Jude is fond of giving truths or, or categories by way of three. You notice he lists three names in verse 1. He lists himself, Jude, and then he lists Jesus Christ, and he lists his brother, James. And then he mentions three positions there. The servant, the the master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and brother. He speaks of three characteristics. They are called, beloved, kept. And here in verse 2, he doesn't depart from this triplet kind of idea. He lists three prayerful requests. Three prayerful requests. This little letter is filled with truth about a very spiritual battle that we face and therefore Jude's desire is a blessing for you and I. Notice he prays for mercy and peace and love to be ours in abundance, be multiplied to you. The idea of multiplied to you, translated in the New American Standard as abundance, is to be filled with capacity, to be filled with capacity. In other words, Jude is telling us that he is praying to God that God would give us so much mercy and so much peace and so much love that our life would have no more room for another drop. That we would be so filled with mercy, so filled with peace, so, so exuberant with the love of God that there would be room for no more at all. I love this. I love this because in the context, Jude is praying for those to whom he is writing. Jude was written thousands of years ago, and yet you and I were not there. We were not the first recipients of this letter. However, Jude, remember, is writing to Christians in general. So more than being a truth that we can just simply read and draw implications from and go, okay, there's implications here for my life, even though I wasn't there. This is Jude in history's past, according to God's providential plan. And yet he's praying for us whom he never knew. Do You ever think of scripture that way? You're reading scripture and you're thinking through the truth of scripture. Do you ever think of it as that? way? More importantly, maybe when you're even sitting down at your computer and you're writing an email to someone and you're desiring to encourage them in some kind of way, or you're texting somebody to encourage them in Christ, do you let them know that you are praying for them in this way? Jude says, I want you to be filled to the fullest with God's mercy, peace, and love. Now, that ought to cause us to pause for a moment and just simply ask the question, why mercy? Why mercy? I mean, if you look at the other New Testament epistles and the greetings from the other New Testament epistles, the mentioning of mercy in a greeting is very rare. Paul wrote 13 books, and yet in only two of them does he mention mercy in the greeting. There are other epistles written by other authors, and yet only one has the mention of mercy, and that is 2 John. And then here in Jude. So why mercy? Well, it's interesting to find that when you look at each and every one of those passages, as I want to do here in just a second, you'll notice that in every one of them as mercy is mentioned it is always mentioned in the context and backdrop of false teaching just notice this for a moment turn over to first timothy chapter 1 first timothy chapter 1 notice the greeting of paul To Timothy, in the first three verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus. Why? Why do you need this mercy? In order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Timothy, I want you to make sure you're strengthened because you need to, to confront an issue that's happening in the church in Ephesus where certain men are, are teaching things that are not true. Tell them they shouldn't pay attention, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. False teaching was taking place. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> Of course, Paul is saying the same thing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, verse 1, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, (coughs) and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, and I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even though I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. And I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it's in you and well, you as well. And for this reason, then, I remind you to kindle afresh this gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God is not a God or hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And he goes all the way down through verse 15 and he says, Beware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Among whom were Phy- Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And then of course you turn over to chapter 3. And Paul really gets to the meat of the issue. Realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. Difficult times are going to come in the church. How do we know that? Because these are people who hold to a form of godliness, verse 5, even though they deny its power. Paul says you need to avoid people like that. False teaching will creep in. It will get ugly. People will want to, as chapter 4 says, gather teachers who will tickle their ears in accordance with their own desires verse 3 of chapter 4 you need mercy timothy you need mercy in all of this go over to second john we see the same thing second john another very short letter Just 13 verses. John says to those whom he's writing, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also those who know the truth for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God, the father, and from Jesus Christ, the son of the father in truth and love. Then he goes on to express his thanks for those who are walking in the truth, and he says in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Why? Because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. You see, you're going to have to stand up against that. You're going to have to stand up for the truth. You're going to have to contend, as Jude says, for the faith, once for all delivered. And in order to do that, you need all the mercy and grace or peace and love you're going to have to be able to muster. So, what are all these writers being led by the spirit to say? Well, it's a reminder to us as Christians that while we certainly were granted sufficient mercy when we were saved by grace through faith, and we certainly will stand in the mercy of God on that final day when all of us will stand before a holy God and account for life, none of that negates the fact that we will need God's mercy each and every day that we live. There is nothing by the unmerited mercy of God shown to us in the moment of salvation that can and does meet our constant day, cannot meet our constant daily need. Why? Because not a day goes by in which you and I do not sin. We need constant mercy. We are forever this side of heaven sinning ignorantly and sinning willfully. And were it not for the constant flow of the mercy of God on our behalf, you and I would be immediately consumed. God sees the righteousness of His Son. He sees his righteousness put to our account and that holds back his righteous wrath that would and would justifiably flow to us, the sinner. And notice, notice in Jude that Jude is saying to us that when we understand the reality of God's mercy that has been abundantly supplied to us, then through that mercy, God also abundantly supplies to us deep-seated peace. May mercy and peace be multiplied to you. You know what peace is, you know what Irene is here, it's that condition of settledness in your inner person. That condition of settledness, it always reminds me, anytime I think of that, I think of that silly joke where someone holds their hand out when they're in a fearful situation. They hold their hand out and they say, you know what that is? And somebody says, what's that? They say, controlled fear. It's that internal settledness, that internal resting place. Why? Because of the understood mercy granted to us. It's a place in which we can understand that God is for us and not against us. And when we understand that in spite of all the sinful ugliness that we know about ourselves, each and every moment that we wake up and when we're honest with our own selves, we understand that even the sin that we commit on a daily basis, even the sin that you committed today, even the sin that I committed, my own heart and mind and thoughts, that God through Christ accepts us, then we have deep peace, deep peace. And so Job says, may mercy and peace be abundantly supplied to you. And therefore, because of this peace that is abundantly supplied to you, this gracious mercy of God that has transformed your very life and your thinking, then therefore you can reach out to others in the way that God has loved you. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Here's how one commentator put it. I think it's helpful. He said, quote, God's own love is poured out to overflowing in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we understand the mercy of God for us, which provides abundant peace within us, so that we then love others as God has loved us. Unquote. We're going to need it. We're going to need all of those. We need all of those if we're going to endure the war for the truth. Why? Because you will be attacked for the truth. Each one of us who proclaim Jesus Christ, each one of us who know Jesus Christ by faith, we will be attacked because we stand on and with the truth of God. In fact, your family may even distance themselves from you as you stand for the truth. Those within your immediate and even your extended family may look at you and they may even hate you because you stand on the truth. Your co-workers in the workplace that God has provided for you may ostracize you and distance themselves from you because you stand on the truth. It's certainly becoming more and more clear in our day and age that you will be, if you stand on the truth, certainly marginalized in the public square. Your voice will be pushed aside. You will be censored in some kind of way. The culture of today may even cancel you. The very thing that will keep you standing is the overwhelming mercy of God that you understand, which will give you an internal peace that settles you no matter what, even as you seek to love the very enemies who are perpetuating the hate upon you. This is the very message that we are hearing here in Jude. In fact, for Jude, it's not simply to just talk about love and to say, hey, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. No, no. He is displaying it to us. He is displaying this kind of love to us as he gives us the direction Right? We we saw his description in verse 1, and then his desire for us here in verse 2, and now he gives the direction in verse 3. Here's the direction. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt a necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I love this because Jude, he just doesn't talk about love. He doesn't just say, hey, listen, guys, you need to go out and love each other in his words. Yeah, those are all great. He actually is showing us what Christian love does. This is Christian love. I mean, there's a lot of debate today about love, right? Love and how it's defined. And yet here is Jude showing us exactly what Christian love does. In other words, he is giving both a serious warning to us to to watch out, to be guarding, to remember that, that false teachers are here, and yet he's also giving a stern rebuke to anyone who might be a false teacher. That's what love does. That's two sides of love. And each of us can learn something very crucial about Christian love by the words of Jude. Why? Because the Christian love on display here in the words of Jude is not some kind of sentimental acquiescence. The love that Jude is displaying is not even a softening. It is not even a lessening of doctrinal truth because hearing truth can send us on our way scratched and bruised. Jude isn't just softening the message. He's not acquiescing to the sentimentality of what some people call love to be. No. True Christian love, listen, is not a substitute for biblical conviction. Christian love is born from the fertile ground of biblical conviction. Just as a fire that's lit in the furnace consumes the impurities from the precious metal that it's being refined, so true Christian love seeks to consume any impurity in the one to which it's directed. True Christian love, as Tim even shared with us before we sang, seeks the best for the one to whom it's directed. We might even say it this way. True Christians don't let other true Christians remain in error. Let me say that again. True Christians don't let other true Christians remain in error. Therefore, you and I as true Christians, we seek to love others through exposing error. That's exactly what Jude is doing right here. I wanted to write to you. I was making an effort to write to you about our common salvation, but there was something more pressing. I felt a necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The words that that we have here in the book of Jude are not what Jude was originally planning to write. He had another desire. He had another plan. He wasn't planning to write about false teachers. He he wasn't planning to write about those who were undermining the gospel truth with outright lies and subtle and subversive half-truths. That's not what he wanted to write. His initial intent was to celebrate with his dear brothers and sisters in Christ... He wanted to speak about and joy and have this joyous celebration in all the glorious truths found in the doctrine of salvation. That's what I wanted to write about, Jude says. I wanted to talk about our redemption. I wanted to talk about the joy we have in adoption in Christ. I wanted to talk about our inheritance in Christ and revel in the reality of what is to come our way. But something more needful needed to be addressed. This is often what happens with us in the Christian life. Oftentimes, you and I will have a desire to get together with an old Christian friend. Or maybe it is that we have a constant meeting with someone in our life. And before we we set out to meet, we we become aware of some sin issue. Or, Or maybe it is we hear from Someone of some kind of strange teaching that's come about in the evangelical landscape and, and we know that they might be in danger of, of going in that direction. And so when we meet, instead of having this grand time of joy and fellowship in, around our common salvation and just rejoicing in Christ, we have to bring up some serious issue. We have to deal with a sin or with some kind of error. Jude says, I felt it necessary. I felt the necessity. And almost hear the tone of his voice change in the words. I wanted to write joyfully about all this common salvation, yet something more serious has come up. Could Jude have written about it, our common salvation? Could he have written about that? I mean, isn't that something we're talking about? Isn't that always profitable? I mean, couldn't that be what the letter of Jude would be about? Nope. Why? Because error was around. Error was so close by. And true Christian love would never simply let error go unchecked. And if it does, it's not biblical love. We are to Ephesians 4, speak truth in love. Therefore, love and truth are inseparably linked. You cannot be loving and yet ignore the truth. You cannot be loving and accept and embrace and coddle error. Jude couldn't have written about our common salvation when the danger of error was already in the church. The gospel was being undermined. Jesus Christ was being denied through through a different gospel. No true Christian can be content when that's happening. No true Christian should be comfortable just sitting back while others are being deceived. We cannot be happy about that. Sometimes when we think of contending for the faith, we don't immediately think of love. Sometimes when we read the words like Jude has written here, that I I want to appeal to you that you contend earnestly, that you agonize with everything you have. That's what the word means. Sometimes when we think about agonizing and wrestling, we don't think about love. Oh, gee, look at the two guys on the wrestling match. One is loving the other one so good. We don't think like that. And yet that's the terminology we have here, and yet it's love that brings it about. In fact, that's exactly how Jude begins, verse 3. calls us beloved, beloved. In other words, Jude truly loves those whom he's writing. It's because of love that Jude is doing what he's doing. It's because of love that Jude is exhorting us to contend. Now, someone will say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Isn't it true that we contend for the faith because God is glorified by that? Yes, that's true. But we contend for the faith because the people of God are better for it. People are better for it when they understand truth. We contend earnestly for an untainted gospel. Why? Because souls are at stake. Because this is life and death forever. We have a body of truth that has been once for all time given to us. You and I, the true Christian, the saints... That's so why he says that. The holy ones. That, it's just a reference back to the first verse. That we are the called. We have been given this body of truth. Those who have been called. Those who are beloved and kept. What's Jude talking about? He's talking about the great doctrines of our salvation. But we have to contend when it's being undermined by error. Now, that simply means that not every moment is a moment for contending. Not every moment is a moment whereby we get into this mode in which we are contending. But when it's necessary, then we must be willing to take up the fight for the truth. And what was it that changed Jude's mind about what he was going to write? What was it going to change? What was it that changed his mind? Well, notice verse four notice verse four for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. so this is the fourth in our listed outline. This is the delineation, or you might even list it as the discernment, the discernment. We might even say it this way. While it was Jude's desire to contend, it was his duty as a true Christian to contend. While it was his desire, more importantly, it was his duty. Somehow, through the providence of God, Jude had heard of certain people, dangerous people, people of influence, and how they had secretly slipped into the church. I don't think by any sense there, when it says... Jude doesn't really drive it down. He just leaves the category open. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now, we equate that with the church, the true church. And yet, in my mind, even today, we can even broaden that category and say the church of evangelicalism of our day, here and now. Not simply here in this local building, but in evangelicalism as a whole, at the church universal at large, they came in under the auspices of being one person, and yet, as they begin to interact with the body of Christ, and the more they interacted, they begin to show their true colors. They try to change the church, change it into their own image. This is how error always comes in. Never comes in holding a sign saying, hey, listen, error has arrived. I'm here. Doesn't do that. No, it always comes in secretly. Unnoticed. In fact, the word used here is similar to the word in Galatians chapter two and verse four, just. You can write that down. I'll read it for us. Quote, it was, Paul said, it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. You remember the the Galatian church had this issue with, with believing or being drawn back to this idea that you can earn your salvation by how you do your deeds, Paul says that the the reason that's happening is because false brethren have have secretly come in. They've sneaked in to spy out our own liberties, our own freedoms in Jesus Christ in order that they might take us back to the place of bondage. So it comes in. comes in smuggled. Smuggled through willful participants who know that what they are saying is false and what they're doing is purposefully to destroy. Or, or it comes in through willful participants who simply because of their own pride, simply because of their own willful desires for personal significance. What do they do? They begin to compromise. They begin to change and adjust the truth and embrace subtle error because it affords them some kind of personal gain Either way, it creeps in. It has to be stopped. And notice how Jude delineates these people. He says, First, they've crept in among us. Two, they are those condemned. Those who were beforehand marked out for this condemnation. And, they, and then he lists their character. They are ungodly. They have abused the grace of God. And they deny the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They have crept in. Should not surprise us. Why? Because they are those who long ago beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. You read commentaries, there seems to be some debate as to what this phrase means. Is it saying that God knew their destiny before they were born, and thereby, that's the reason it's saying this? Well, possibly. Certainly God knew their destiny because God is the creator of all things. God knows all things. But what Jude seems to be saying in the context is that they have been marked out long ago for condemnation, but the condemnation that he's about to lay at their very feet, that he's about to be speaking in this letter. Why? Because it's the same condemnation that runs throughout the entire Bible when dealing with apostasy and it being judged by God. This is the same thing. Jude is basically saying, listen, this is nothing new. So not only is this letter an exhortation to us, but it's also a letter of condemnation to the false. He's saying God will judge. God will judge. They're not getting away with anything. God will judge. Then notice he delineates their character. They're ungodly. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. The first quality is comprehensive, ungodly. In other words, their absence of any, any fear of God at all. That's really the essence of ungodliness. Nothing about the very character of God, nothing about the very nature of God restrains them in any kind of way. They are ungodly. They have an inner attitude that is no fear of God at all, which exudes itself in outward actions. What are those outward actions? Jude gives us, gives two of them to us here. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness or they turn the grace of God into license. And he's not talking about them trying to formally redefine the grace of God in some kind of doctrinal statement whereby they, they, outwardly in some leadership position, redefine God's grace, which is of course what we know, the doctrine of unmerited favor. They're not doing that. That's not what he's saying. He isn't saying they're doing that. No, what he is saying is that they are living in such a way in their life and by their very actions as if the grace of God allows them to live any way they want. That because God is a gracious God, because God is a God of grace, it really doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I carry myself. I can profess to know Jesus Christ. I can profess to have a relationship with Him. And I can go live just like the world lives. It really doesn't matter. In other words, they see grace as an all-access pass to whatever indulgence fills their flesh. Whatever they want. Any kind of moral debauchery becomes theirs. You see this all over the place today in evangelicalism with Young Restless reform Movement and all kinds of people who think that it's okay to go and have bar ministries and all these other kind of things that link themselves with the debauchery of humanity and then try to go in there and do the same things thinking that that's going to be a door open for the gospel. That's not the grace of God. That's not an understanding of the grace of God because the grace... of our God is a restraining grace. It's not a grace that opens the door to do whatever you want. It's a restraining grace. It's a grace that frees us from sin. It doesn't free us into greater sin. And because of that, he gives us another quality. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is by their very lives. By their very lives, they are actually denying Christ. Oh, sure. No one comes out and says, hey, listen, I deny Christ. No one who says they believe in Jesus would come out and say, I deny Christ. No, they simply reject his rule over them. That's what they reject. That's why he uses the terminology. They deny our only master and Lord. Both of those signify authority, rule, Direction, the reality that one must submit to it. And so they're denying the master and they use excuses and their excuses come in the guise of grace. None like that have a real love for the church. No real love in that for the body of Christ. They hate the church. You say, that's pretty strong words, pastor. Yeah, but it's true. They hate the church. Why? Because by what they're doing, they're tearing the church apart. They're actually attacking the gospel by how they live and abuse grace. So the question for us is, do we recognize that these things will happen and are happening? And do we have the courage in the face of it to stand for the truth or are we going to run? Are we going to run? So I was preparing my message. I had received an email back on the 1st of February from an organization in our evangelical society called the Christian Biblical, or Christian Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Organization. They're, I think, a solid foundation. And I received this email. If you if you think this stuff isn't happening and you think you don't need to be prepared, I, I want to share with you a little bit about this email so that you're aware. And then we'll just close in prayer. I was reading it to my wife the other day and she said, you're not going to read that whole thing, are you? I said, well, I'm going to read part of it. But why? Because there's there's a lot of political information in it. And I'm not here to make the pulpit something of politics, but I think it's important for us. The email was talking about gender neutrality and the idea that gender neutrality has now gone to Washington. Said this at some point in the past decade, the battle of the sexes seems to have given way to a war on the sexes. He says last month, the democratic leader of the house established rules for the 117 Congress. Congress. And the changes were intended to make the rules for the house more inclusive. In fact, the most inclusive in history. As part of this effort, the rules will honor all gender identities by changing, quote, the pronouns and familial relationships in the house rules to be gender neutral, unquote. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean the letter went on to say Well for one thing this new house rule strikes out the following uncontroversial words quote father mother Son, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepfather, stepmother, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson or granddaughter, unquote. In other words, those words you cannot use to identify anybody. In place of those apparently problematic words, you are now to refer to people in this way. Quote, parent, child, sibling, parents, sibling, first cousin, siblings, child, spouse, parent-in-law, child-in-law, sibling-in-law, step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, half-sibling, or grandchild. Unquote of course, you and I, as Christians, ought to be able to recognize the problem with that kind of proposal, and the letter went on to say the whiplash effect that has taken place within evangelicalism is understandable. We only yesterday were coping with the idea that some think a man can become a woman. And now we are having to consider the idea of a person leaving behind manhood and womanhood altogether. In other words, gender neutrality went public. And it went public through an overnight decision about non-binary pronouns. Here's where we need to take note of exactly what is happening by these new rules of our government. He went on to say, in these rules, gender neutrality is not merely reserved for those who would no longer identify as male and female. Instead, Don't miss this. Instead, everyone is forced into the gender neutral paradigm regardless of their respective identities. What do we mean? Spouse is not put alongside husband and wife anymore, it replaces it altogether. You think of yourself as a mother. Not according to the new accepted government rules. You can't think of yourself as a mother. You're not a mother. You're a parent. You want to invite your nephew over to do something? You cannot. You can only invite your sibling's child. Nephew is unacceptable. So These rules are said to be the most inclusive in history. And yet in the words of the name inclusivity, mother and father, son and daughter are now excluded. So in the name of tolerance, niece and nephew are no longer tolerated. You see the lunacy of it? So the reigning cultural values of inclusion and tolerance are most exclusive and intolerant that has come down the line. They say that's why inclusion and tolerance can never be the aims unto themselves. To be sure, they have never been included in the list of cardinal virtues. Why? Because a virtue is grounded in truth. It's grounded in truth, which is grounded in reality. If you start including unreality alongside reality on the sole basis of being inclusive, what you get is a denial of reality altogether. You destroy the very structure that it meant to uphold. This is what I really wanted to get to. Because he said the same thing will continue to happen everywhere. Lies are embraced as the truth. This very idea that's happening in Washington, D.C., that seems to not have any effect upon us in one sense. Will happen everywhere. As long as lies are embraced as the truth. Where the fundamental, incontrovertible differences between men and women and the implications of those differences are downplayed and ignored, then the acid of that pretense will eat away and erode the truth. And nowhere is safe from this corrosion, they go on to say. The home is not safe. The local church and society at large will become compromised to the point of destruction. Why? When we ignore one of the most basic tenets of the human experience. What's he saying? You ignore the truth and begin to embrace the lie. There's only one end to that. Destruction. It's interesting that Jude would use those terms. These were those who were long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So the writer of this article said we are more in an ideological war than simply about words and semantics. About sports and bathrooms and things like that when it comes to the gender idea. If you can be made to doubt the truth about gender and sex... One of the most obvious and well established truths affirmed by the most rudimentary and most complex levels of inquiry? If you can doubt that, then you have been primed to deny and embrace anything. So if we care about reality, if we care about the truth at all, then we will understand not to allow unreality any kind of standing in the name of inclusivity, in the name of tolerance. Because to do that is to exclude and no longer tolerate God and his created order. This rejection of God's created order is a rejection of God himself. That's how subtle it is. If you think you're not dealing with it, you are. It's not simply about the elders of this church fighting for truth. It's about all of us fighting for truth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the truth. We thank you that we don't have to live in the subjective notions of the minds of men and the philosophies of men who conjure up all of this odd weird reality for it is not reality at all only you and the things of the truth are real all of these other notions are simply the outworkings of sin the desires for self the rejection of you the abusing of your grace the denial of you as the ultimate master and Lord. Lord, I pray in our lives, we would be discerning that we would recognize that we would always be looking that we wouldn't just sit back and think, okay, I've been warned, but that we would be always attentive and discerning of the error that is all around us, that we would speak clearly in spite of the consequences that we would stand for the truth, no matter what happens to us, because Lives are at stake. Truth matters. Lies destroy. Give us that courage. Help us to remember that we are secure in you. And help us to live according to that mercy and grace and love that you have shown us. And if they hate us, they've hated you before us. We thank you for that. Bless each one here this day. In Christ's name, amen.